Welcome back to the Joseph Cox Show. This week's podcast won't be entirely from new cloth. I've just got so much going on, and something I wrote in the past works well for a lot of what I want to discuss, but not all of it. A few announcements, though, first. First off, I published an article on Talk Markets about the grave risks of the U.S. setting international minimum tax rates and trying to determine international social policy. I won't include that in this podcast, but if you're interested, you can go to Talk Markets, look for Joseph Cox, and you'll see the article. Second, I'm founding a new charity. If you're possibly interested in being a board member, let me know. You do know me. I can explain what we're doing and why we're doing it and how. Um, I only need one more board member, and I have a few possibilities, so this will be a bit of a beauty contest for particular things that I'm looking for. Uh, Don't be insulted if I don't choose you. Also, if you know somebody who can do React native coding on Android, I'd love to be introduced. I want to modify something. Okay, on to the Torah. Again, this will be relatively quick. So let's start with the Omer, because of course we are all counting, or at least those of us who are uh, Torah observant Jews are counting the Omer. The first question is, why do we count it? Or in other words, what does it mean? Well, we have a few hints. First, the Omer counts off seven weeks, like a week of weeks. That is pretty suggestive, especially when the simple reading of the text suggests we start counting the Shabbat after the Exodus, not the day after. In that case, we'd be counting literally seven weeks. Second, the Omer count starts shortly after the Exodus. And third, the Omer itself comes up shortly after the Exodus in the context of weeks. That last one is key. The man is the context in which this occurs, and it is delivered in a daily Omer. Not more, not less. An Omer is the amount a person needs to eat each day, as we see in the story of the man. The word is used in numerous interesting places. The man Omer is used to teach us about trust in God and to teach us about the Shabbat. We don't save food from the Omer. We have to trust Hashem will provide that food the next day. And for Shabbat, Hashem will provide what we need on the sixth day. We did a double portion. We can truly rest with Hashem. To reduce the lesson of the Omer to a single lesson, we can trust Hashem to provide for us during the week, and we can trust in Hashem to provide for our ability to rest with Him. Yes, we work. But the Torah divorces the concept of creative work and actual earnings. We can create and earn nothing, and we can do no work and we can earn something. We could be a slave and not earn anything, even though we're doing active creative work. And on the other hand, we can experience the Yovel, the 50-year cycle, and receive lands, but having not earned them. Right? The act of creation is our responsibility, but the earning, whether it sustains us during the week or on the Shabbat, is a gift of God. At the end of the Omer account, this concept is further reinforced. We bring offerings to Jerusalem, but unusually we bring fruit and leavened bread. We bring things that represent not our own labor, but God's gift to us. We acknowledge Hashem's gifts. The Omer is a daily and weekly build-up to this acknowledgement. So why don't we eat an Omer every day and say a special blessing to memorialize why we do it? The answer is that we're growing up. With Pesach, we ate matzah and maror. We lived things viscerally. With the crossing of the sea, we have the only drawing in Torah of the people crossing between the waters. Now we are maturing. We count because we are symbolically representing the original Omer rather than literally, childishly, aping what happened the first time around. So as you count your Omer, thank Hashem for your daily bread. We could even do this a little more literally. In ancient times, we offered an Omer of barley in Yerushalayim each day. For offering purposes, the rabbis derived quite a large definition of the Omer but I think you'd be challenged to eat 2.5 to 4 liters of barley a day. 
The recommended daily intake for modern adults is a more modest 2,000 to 2,500 calories a day. Averaging the two numbers, this is about 635 grams of barley or 1.4 pounds. Retail barley prices are a bit hard to nail down. We don't exactly index it as a core consumer good. Bulk commodity prices are about $100 a metric ton. Wheat is about double that. According to globalproductprices.com, the average price per kilo for wheat is $1.26 in the U.S. and 5.5 shekel in Israel. For 700 grams, it would be 88 cents in the U.S. or 385 in Israel. Correct for barley, and you've got 44 cents in the U.S. and 1 shekel 92 in Israel. Although it isn't currently my custom, maybe one could express thanks and trust by giving a day's worth of barley in Omer offering of sorts when they count, and two days' gifts when they count on Friday. It would total up to $22 over 49 days in the U.S. and 94 shekel in Israel. Okay, on to the Torah portion itself in rapid fashion. Well, somewhat rapid fashion. The rapidity is not in the podcast itself, but in the writing. I'm going to read something I wrote a few years ago that captures my understanding of this portion rather than creating something entirely new. Forgive me again, this is going to be read. Uh, the person who's the, the character's perspective is this is an older woman. Uh, it is not me. Um, and of course, I don't exactly have an older woman's voice. The boy looks up at me. He has always struck me with his incredibly intense eyes. But there is fear there now, a deep and troubling fear. Grandma, he asks. Yes, I answer, my voice shaking. Is God going to kill me too? I don't know the answer to his question. How could I? How can I understand what has happened? I stroke the boy's hair gently. No, I say calmly. God won't kill you. I've said it, but I'm not sure I believe it. He looks at me doubtfully. It is time to sleep, but he will be consumed by nightmares. I will be consumed by nightmares. How could we possibly avoid being consumed by nightmares. One minute Nadav and Aviv had been approaching the Mishkan our people had built, and then the next minute they had been consumed by a heavenly fire. It had happened only hours ago. The entire community is still in shock, and I know I'm not the only woman trying to calm a frightened child. And what had Moshe, our great leader, done? He had tried to make Aaron act as if nothing had happened, but something had happened. When Aaron made it clear that he was in no state to celebrate, Moshe had accepted that. But then he'd gone on one of his law-giving binges. He'd gone on and on about what kinds of animals and birds and fish we can or can't eat. I'm sure the man is holy, but he has no sense for people. The little boy is still looking at me. He's only five. He's seen so much already. These last few years have been both miraculous and frightening. I need to give him something to hold on to, but I don't know what. And then I have an idea. Can you see the string, I ask. What string, the boy replies. The string, I say, that connects us. He looks at me very seriously and says, there's no string, Grandma. Of course there is, I say. I love you, and that connects me to you. And you love me, and that connects you to me. It's a string that connects us. You can't see it, but it is even more real than my hand or your nose. His eyes widen. I keep going. We have strings that go all over the place. Some are thick and strong like our string, but others are thin and weak. He's listening carefully. But one string is the most important and hardest to see of all. Do you know which string that is? He shakes his head no. The string from us to Hashem, I say. That string is called holiness, and it crosses from our world where there are physical things and where things change to his world where everything is spiritual and where nothing changes. 
Moshe said Nadav and Aviyu strengthened that string, the boy whispers. He said their death sanctified God. How can that be? I'm stunned by the question. The boy listens to everything. I don't know, I say. Let's try to work it out. Let's start at the beginning. How do you make that string? I, I don't know, the boy says. Well, I say, then let's start at the beginning. The way we build our strings, any of them, is by investing in them. We don't just have an emotion, because emotion alone makes a very weak string. Instead, we build and create and add something physical, and then we consume that physical thing in order to make the spiritual string. Do you understand? He looks at me and then says, Like when Dad made the top of our tent by tanning animal skins? Exactly, I said. He worked and worked and then used what he worked for for the benefit of his family, and he made the string between himself and all you children stronger. The boy smiles widely. Do you know who did this first? No, says the boy. Hashem, I said. When he created for six days and then rested on the seventh, he invested in our world and then rested in it, and he created holiness as a result. But he killed Adav and Aviyu. He did, I say. So let's keep exploring. How do we people create? With our hands, the little boy answers. That's right, I say. I don't know what to say next. I seem to have reached a dead end, and then an idea strikes me. Do you remember when Moshe told us about which animals we can eat? Do you remember any of the rules for animals? My grandson thinks for a moment and then says, Animals have to have split hooves and chew their cud. Very good, I say with a smile. Now do you know why? No, he answers, a bit disappointed. That's okay, I say. Let's think about our hands. If an animal has no fingers, can it create like us? No, he says, it can't. Right, I say, and if it has lots of fingers, like we do, then it can create, he answers, like us. Right again, I say with a smile. Well, if it has lots of fingers, we shouldn't eat it. We'd be destroying an animal that can create like us, and that would be a waste. We don't connect to Hashem by destroying. He is the creator, and we want to imitate him. But animals with split hooves just have the essence of creation. They have the symbolism of creation, but aren't actually creative. So we can eat them and make them a part of us. Is that why the Kohanim split their fingers like cows? Yes, I say. The Kohanim aren't supposed to be creative like regular people. They are hampered, just like the cows. The Kohan's job is to actually weave the string using the investments of the people. After a pause, the boy asks, So why do the animals need to chew their cud? Ah, I say, the pieces clicking together. Because when they chew their cud, they rest like we should on the Sabbath living on what we've already acquired and resting with God. This trait gives them the ability to contribute to the string of holiness. The boy thinks for a while, and then his eyes open wide. Nadav and Aviv did this wrong, he says. What do you mean, I ask? I hadn't realized there was a connection. They only brought incense, the boy says. My father taught me that incense represents emotion, because smells make us feel things. But they didn't bring flour, which takes a lot of work to make. And they didn't bring oil, which takes a lot of purification to make. They didn't make the string the right way. You're right, I say, surprised. I act delighted, but the image of those burning brothers is still burned into my mind. Can the birds help us understand more, the boy asks? I think for a moment, and then I realize the answer to his question. Well, I say, we live in a world where our strings can connect to all sorts of things, even things that aren't real. What do you mean, he asks. We could connect our strings to gods that don't exist, I say. And when we do so, the collection of strings is connected to nothing. But because so many strings go there, we think they exist. 
but only the connections would be real, not the thing they're connecting to. We can even connect to ourselves and not really know we are connecting to Hashem. What does this have to do with the birds, he asks. Ah, I say, remember when Moshe told us what birds we can and can't eat? Yes, says the boy, his voice trailing off. Did he give us a rule? A rule? Did he say something like, you can't eat all the red ones? No, says the boy, he just told us which birds we can eat and which birds we can't. Right, I say. That's because birds are so close to Hashem's world. Hashem lives in a world without death, and there's nothing dead in the sky. In order to draw close to Hashem, we aren't allowed to figure out what is holy or not. It is too tempting to pick whatever we already believe in, and if we did that, the strings would connect to something other than Hashem. So when we draw close to Hashem, He decides what's holy, and the closer you get to God, the more He decides what's right. I see the boy thinking, and then he says quietly, Nadav and Avihu designed their own offering. You're right, I say, surprised again, and we're so close to God, we're not allowed to do that. I'm beginning to suspect that this is why Moshe had gone into all those strange laws. He might have been telling us what Nadav and Avihu had done wrong. What about the bugs, the boy asks. The bugs, I wonder? Could Moshe have intended a message even with the bugs? He always seemed to like symbolic riddles. I don't know where to start, so I asked the boy, did you notice anything strange about the bugs? Yeah, says the boy. He said they go on four legs, but bugs have six legs. Four legs, I trail off thinking. And then an idea comes to me. My beautiful boy, what else does arba or four mean? It means multiply, says the boy. Right again, I say. Maybe Moshe was saying the bugs go by multiplying. They don't act as individuals. They aren't driven to connect by themselves. Instead, they act by teeming and producing generations of bugs. We can't bring that essence into ourselves. The boy looks thoughtful. But what about the ones with jointed legs that jump? How can we can eat them? Ah, I say. When you want to go someplace, how do you get there? I run, says the boy. Yes, you run, I say, with your legs. You can go places you choose to go because of your legs. You don't go places by multiplying. You do it by choosing and then using your legs to get there. Well, the bugs we can eat have legs like ours, and they jump up, using those legs to go places and jump towards the heavens. In a way, they have a will, just like we do. They have an essence that can be a part of a holy people. The boy whispers, Nadav and Avihu were drunk. Yes, I know, I whisper back, filled with sadness. I'm not sure why he brought it up. I know how they got when they were drunk. It was like they weren't themselves. The wine took over. I know, I say. They were like bugs with no legs, he says. They didn't have their own will. I just stare at him for a minute, stunned. Were all of Moshe's laws teaching us to avoid the mistakes of Nadav and Avihu? Let's try the fish, I say. Okay, says the boy. What's special about water, I ask? Everyone always says it's spiritual, says the boy. Which is why Shemaim, or heaven, literally means place of waters. And why Miriam's holiness gave us the well that travels with us. Very good, I say, getting to the beginning of an idea. We are surrounded by spirituality like a fish is surrounded by water, and not just Hashem's. Like I said before, we are all trying to connect, and so we create a sea of strings. Okay, says the boy, closing his eyes and trying to imagine what that is like. We could just open ourselves up to all of them. We could take in all the spiritual connections, but that isn't our job. We're supposed to connect to Hashem, and if we connect to everything, we can't connect as strongly to Him. He is jealous. He doesn't want to share us with things that do not even exist. Okay, says the boy. Well, I say, the fish need to have scales to protect themselves in the waters. We use the word for scales for armor. 
And we need to have spiritual scales to separate ourselves from other spiritual forces. And fish need to have fins so they steer themselves to the waters. Likewise, we need to steer through the spiritual waters so we can find and connect to Hashem. The string from us to Him is only strong if we save it for Him and if we actually try to make it so. Did Nadavanavi you get this wrong? he asks. This time I have the answer. They were priests. They were Kohanim. They were supposed to be weavers of our string. But they aren't supposed to be the people who supply the emotion and investment the string needs to be strong. But they brought incense. They brought emotion. It is what normal people bring. They didn't make themselves distinct. They lacked scales. And they only brought incense. It was emotion driving them, not true intent. They lacked fins. So they did that wrong too, the boy concludes. They did, I agree. The boy still looks a little sad and scared. I try to reassure him. God won't kill you, I say. God won't kill you because you always act with will, like the bugs we can eat, and you make yourself distinct and directed like the fish we can eat, and you let God define what is holy as you draw close to him like the birds we can eat, and you embrace the cycle of holiness like the animals we can eat. I pause for a moment, letting it all sink in. Moshe had been giving a message to all of us. He'd been giving us a physical mnemonic so we could avoid the fate of Nadav and Aviyu, and he'd done it without ever criticizing the brothers themselves. He may not be good with people, but I can still appreciate what he's done. But how did Nadav and Aviyu, dying, sanctify God, the boy asks. I draw in a long breath. Their death showed us how to strengthen the string the right way. It helped all of us make a proper connection with Hashem. The boy just sits there, a tear suddenly appearing in his eye. I give him a hug and then whisper, so long as you remember to connect only to him, and so long as you do it the way he wants, God will grant you peace. He's crying more now. I hold him. He's exhausted and I can feel the grief pouring out of his body. Finally, he pulls away and looks up at me. Thank you, Grandma Elisheva, he says with a soft smile. Sleep well, I say gently. Sleep well, my little Pinchas. And with that, he lays back and immediately begins to drift off. Once he is asleep, I stand up and walk slowly from the tent. He can sleep, but I can't. I am Elisheva, the wife of Aaron, and I have lost two of my sons this day. I have watched their burnt bodies being carried away, and even the quiet, beautiful power of Pinchas' young face cannot wipe away my horror. As I exit the tent, the cold night air strikes my face, and then I realize that while I can explain what happened, I will never be able to understand it. That's the story. Obviously, it has some connections to Yom HaShoah, which is today. I want to give credit to Shai Kohn, a hat tip for the concept of the fish being distinct and directed within the waters. Um, I changed it a little bit to uh, to being armored, um, but, uh, but that idea still stands as still uh, a useful one. Thank you for listening, and Shabbat Shalom.